Welcome to the Grow My Revenue Business Cast with Ian Altman, unconventional strategies for selling, innovation, and leadership. Ian interviews some of the brightest minds who share proven methods to help you achieve success and grow revenue with integrity. Every episode concludes with a quick recap of actionable steps you can take to deliver tangible, immediate results for your business. Now, here's your host, Ian Altman. Hey, it's Ian Altman. I'm like a kid in a candy store today because I'm joined by Seth Godin. Seth has written 18 number one bestsellers. They've been translated into 35 languages. Thankfully, English is one of them. And his latest book, What to Do When It's Your Turn, was a quick bestseller. We're going to talk about what mistakes are politicians making, like our presidential candidates, that they're probably overlooking. We'll talk about fixed fee versus time materials-based billing. And we'll talk about if you really want to attract the right clients and grow your business with distinction, why maybe you shouldn't focus on the simple tasks, but instead focus on the more complex ones. Put on your seatbelts and join me for a wild ride with Seth Godin. Seth Godin, it's an honor to have you with us, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Ian. Thanks for the work you do. Let me, let me ask you, and I want to jump into something that's kind of a big idea, which is what's the greatest overlooked marketing opportunity that you see businesses miss today? Being human. <laughs> what do you mean by that when you say being human? Well, most organizations got successful uh, more than 10 years ago. That's where they, they got their chops. They built their momentum during the industrial age, during an age where scale mattered, during an age where an efficient factory could lower your costs, lower costs could grow market share, let you hire more salespeople who would follow the sales manual and divide up the territories and have policies and bureaucracy, and you have a machine. And the Internet has changed a lot of things, but one thing it has done is juxtaposed your machine with somebody else's machine. And suddenly you're not competing for your fair share of uh, the market in Depew, New York, or your fair share of the market in one particular kind of pump in one particular vertical, everyone is one click away. And so that bullying tactic of we are bigger, faster, cheaper doesn't work when there's someone who's bigger than you, faster than you, and cheaper than you. Uh, the alternative is to take those skills you've got, that ability you've got, and add to it and put in its core the fact that you are humans and that you are going to treat other people like humans, that you will be noticeable and remarkable and missed if you were gone. And that doesn't happen if you're the RFP winner. It happens if a true, transparent, vulnerable connection has been made. Yeah, it's that, it's that level of empathy, I guess, where the other side and which really isn't the other side, it's your, your partner, not your adversary, who says, wow, they, they really understand and appreciate me. It's not just a factory that's producing this, but they, they've personalized what they're doing to my condition, my business, my situation. Well, it goes beyond that, because a lot of people who hear this say, great, I want to do that, but still industrialize the process. I want to <laughs> do that, but how do I scale it? And yeah. I, I'm arguing that scale is often a negative now that when we are sitting in a restaurant paying more than we need to for the calories we need to survive we don't care that the restaurant has a lot of tables we don't care that the restaurant has a lot of branches we care that in this moment right here and right now we are treasured and welcome 
so when Danny Meyer grows Shake Shack, every Shake Shack doesn't succeed because there are a lot of Shake Shacks. Every Shake Shack succeeds because if you go to that Shake Shack, you feel like you were glad you were there in that moment. Yeah, so it's a, it's a personalized experience for that individual at that time, and which 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 leads me to this question, which is, so people have this mindset in this industrial age of scale of replicating. How do you see the influence of that industrial age limiting today's businesses? What what are the shackles that people are burdened with? And obviously, part of it is that idea of trying to just replicate without personalizing and making it human. But where, where, where else do you see that? Do you see that happening in the businesses that you talk to? Well, I, I see it almost at every turn. You know, if you think about you're dealing with a, an institution and you need something, they say, well, just this one time, but I won't be able to do it again. Right? <laughs> like, well, first of all, saying that statement is ridiculous. But <laughs> beyond that, what you just said is we're willing to make you happy now. But remember, we're not really interested in making you happy in the long run. You know, you think about uh, this whole idea of needing to treat people as a mass. And what I wrote about in We Are All Weird is for the first time in 100 years, we can treat different people differently. We know who's coming. We know what they need. And we ought to reorganize everything we do for them because we can and, you know, the simple example that resonates with a lot of people, it's very difficult for me to go into a Barnes & Noble these days because I want them to reorganize the store based on my needs because that's what Amazon does every time <laughs> I go to their store. Exactly. Right? And so this idea that we remember you and we know what you like and we know what you don't like. When I go to the dentist, uh, they turn off the TV in the waiting room before I get there because they know... I hate sitting in a room being with TV blaring at me. And <laughs> it doesn't take anything for them to say, oh, Seth's coming, and they go out in the waiting room and turn it off. But that's why I haven't switched dentists, because they, yeah. would, they would miss me if I didn't go back. Yeah, and, and in fact, one of, the, one of the things I often talk to people about is I say, look, if all you do is produce and deliver a commodity, if you haven't been replaced by Amazon yet, just wait a few months and you probably will be. Because I think the mechanism that they have to allow someone to have the ease of finding what they want and in some cases suggesting what you didn't know you wanted and then delivering it in many cases the same day is pretty tough to compete with if all you're delivering is a commodity. And yet so many people who are listening to this try to turn their business into a commodity because it's safer. So, yeah. you know, think about you're ordering a $2,000 printing job. What the person you're working with should say is, what complications, difficulties, and customizations would you like us to add to this? Because <laughs> the more of that that we do, the more likely it is we're the only people who can do it. But instead, they say, whoa, scale, scale, scale. This is what we offer. And if it's not in these six boxes, you can't have it. Well, then you're offering what everyone else can offer. Don't be surprised when I click around to see who's cheaper. Yep. Now, now when, we, when we talk about this idea of, of, of commoditization, um, I often speak about the problem of trading hours for dollars. And I often tell people, look, when you're just trading hours for dollars, you're as close to a commodity as you can be. How do you feel about hourly versus value-based or fixed-fee pricing for services businesses? 
Well, it's, I think it might be easy to oversimplify this. Um, we certainly don't expect to pay a doctor by the hour because we don't go to the doctor to buy hours of her time. We go to the doctor to not die. Yeah. And so the doctor says, I will do my best to have you not die. And you're just going to have to trust me and my reputation that you will be charged fairly for this. On the, on the other hand, there are transactions that are inherently based on time. So, uh, you know, when you get a massage or when you uh, hire somebody to do, uh, I don't know, coding, it's often easier to compare apples to apples, which the uninformed client needs to do. Because if they don't trust you the way they trust their doctor, they have a hard time getting their arms around what it is that you're delivering. So I guess the way you move up a ladder, and it is a ladder, from the hour to the deliverable, is you have to earn enough intimacy with the client that they understand, that you understand, that the deliverable is what they want. Right? That yep. the deliverable, that you both agree on what the deliverable is. Yeah, I, I, I often think it's funny when I when I when I share with companies and I say, look, here's here's a strategy. Your your client is not sitting around thinking to themselves, wow, I've got this HR issue. What I really want is 12 and a half hours per week of an HR person. No, what they want is to solve those HR problems. And if you know how to do it in an hour or 20 hours, they really don't care because it's worth a certain amount to them to know that problem gets solved. When we then have that discussion with people, invariably someone says, oh, but there's too many variables that could make it so that if we charge a fixed fee, it wouldn't be profitable. To which I always say, really, could you list them? Oh, it'd be impossible. Well, let's try. And they usually get to four or five discrete things they could list out, which if they included that, the customer would see that and say, oh, yeah, of course, those, those are reasonable things that wouldn't be included. Well, let's go a little further here, which is it's not like you're relocating your family to Des Moines and taking a 10-year contract. Yeah. That when I work with a freelancer, if they don't uh, end up being cost-efficient, then I stop working with them. And sure. they should do the same with me. That if you go to somebody and say, I will solve your HR problem on a regular basis for this much money – and it turns out that they're greedy or that they don't get it or that they keep piling on to take advantage, you can say, you know what? I have other people I'd rather be my client. Yeah, and, then that's not a good client for you. And you learn right. something. There's an a, a, a old, old friend of mine used to run a, um, before he passed away, a, a fancy hotel in Canada. And they were known for their buffet. And I was sitting uh, at breakfast with him one morning and he turned to the woman sitting next to him and said that guy Davis put him on the no list and I said <laughs> what's the no list and he explained that this guy Davis was a pig and he would just seek out the smoked salmon on the buffet and take $75 <laughs> worth of smoked salmon and they didn't say anything to him but every time he called for the rest of his life the hotel was fully booked <laughs> Now, now the, the converse of that is you see businesses where that happens, and then they say, okay, we're not going to put out salmon anymore. Right. And the reality is you had, you had one pig who took advantage, and now you've just 
you know, cut off your nose to spite your face instead of, look, let's not create a rule for everybody exactly. to protect against the one knucklehead. Yep. And of course, I mean, I see that with companies and how they treat their employees all the time, where, oh, this one employee took advantage of this policy. So now we're going to make the policy absolutely um, just oppressive for everyone else instead of, wait, maybe that employee shouldn't be here anymore. Right, exactly. And I, I, think that's, I think that's a challenge. Now, we're starting pretty darn early into a presidential race. What do you see as the biggest marketing and messaging mistakes that politicians make? And obviously, we don't need to pick on individual parties or candidates, but what are the biggest marketing and messaging mistakes that you see and what should they be doing instead to build trust? Yeah, we don't have to pick on anyone in particular because they're all making exactly the same three mistakes. It's mistake number one yeah. is the mistake almost all marketers make, which is not acknowledging that people tell themselves a story and that the yeah. story is always more important than the facts. Sure. And so if you, know, if you say Ronald Reagan or Richard Nixon or John F. Kennedy, all that we remember are the stories. We don't yep. remember what the gross domestic product was. We don't remember what the unemployment rate was. We remember the way we feel about how someone is in the world. And sure. these, this is an intentional choice. Number two is um, they are conflating the idea of money with the idea of impact because yeah. money is easy to measure. And so we see the same thing with how much did that Silicon Valley company raise or how much does that salesperson get paid? Money is not... Uh, an appropriate measure of most anything after a certain point, but it's easy to measure, so we get connected to it. Uh, yeah. And that because they're raising money, they're spending money, and because they're spending money, they're spending it on things that are actually decreasing trust, not increasing it, because we know since 1960, the reason politicians run TV ads is not to get people to vote for them. It's to get people to not vote for their opponent. Yeah. And that's the reason that the voting rate keeps going down is because yeah. TV ads are designed to do it. But the third thing and the biggest thing of all is along the way, and I was told this by the campaign manager for someone very, very high up. I stormed out of his office after he said it to me, uh, <laughs> was he said, this campaign goes out of business on election day. And after yeah. that, I don't care what happens to my donors. I don't care what happens to my field people. I don't care. And that's just absurd. Yeah. Um, that, in fact, permission, the privilege of in delivering anticipated personal and relevant messages to people who want to get them, is the essence of democracy in a Republican institution, Republican meaning a republic. Yep. And um, they, politicians are so selfish and so short-term that they burn it on a regular basis. And I just sit there and I shake my head unbelievably because they, they act like they're surprised that there's another election four years from now. Yeah. Uh, and so that idea <laughs> of, earn, of telling a story without using a lot of money to earn the attention and trust of people who want to hear from you is what works. And yet the political industrial complex keeps pushing back against it. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think all of, the, all of the things that you teach us about permission-based is the antithesis of what your typical politician does when you get the robocalls and all this stuff where I think to myself, how much are they spending reaching out to people who they know couldn't possibly be interested in their message? Right. And, and I don't know about you, when I hear an overly negative campaign, the first thing through my head is, 
well, this person clearly has nothing positive to talk about because they're just talking about the other side, what they're not doing, instead of talking about what they think should be done. And it, it actually draws me away. And I'm sure there's a lot of research that says it works with a segment of the population. Maybe we just need to figure out a way to uh, get the population to be smarter about these things. Well, let me add a twist here. I don't think successful politicians tell us what they think should be done. I think successful politicians tell us who we are. I think that they say we and mean it. Yep. People like us do things like this. So what the, the details of Keystone XL policy are not really what's important. What's important is how do you feel about Keystone XL policy and are you someone like me? If you're someone like me, I trust that you will make judgments like someone like me would make. And this is not the identity politics of she doesn't look like me, therefore we're against her. This is the identity politics of we together are going somewhere and I don't want to vote for the other. And so politicians um, are so busy pointing out who the other are that they forget to reinforce who the we are. Yeah, and, and, the, and the ones who do identify that way, they build the tribe, as, as you would teach us. They build a tribe around people who say, wow, this person thinks like me, and here's what we do together, which I think is, is a brilliant insight that, candidly, I probably overlook, and I'm sure a lot of other people do when it comes to uh, politicians. But, but it's true. When I, when I think about who's been successful over the years, it's the people who get enough voters to think, wow, this person's a lot like me and share similar views that I share. Right. And, there, you know, fortunately, there are no politicians listening. So the real win here is, <laughs> is to figure out the metaphor. You know, uh, yes. I, I like to say that no one gets a Suzuki tattoo. <laughs> and, and so the return on equity of making a Harley Davidson motorcycle is dramatically bigger than making a Suzuki motorcycle because Harleys are for people like us. Not me, yeah. but the people who yeah. buy them say that. Well, if you are merely a human cog in a sales machine where you're not adding any personality or, or self to it, then don't be surprised that the sales manager treats you poorly or that you get replaced. On the other hand, if you are people like us selling to people like us a product that people like us or a service that people like us use, then when you show up, you're not an intrusion. You're welcome. Yeah. Fantastic. Let me let me ask you about Purple Cow because it's something that that you know I I advise my clients all the time. Look, you've got to get, consume, and live Purple Cow. And rather than me describe it, explain what you mean by being a Purple Cow. Well, there's a whole origin story that's in the book that I don't need to tell again. Yep. But the idea is simple, which is we know that banner ads, TV ads, radio ads billboards, calling people at home in the middle of the night. None of those things actually change people's minds about much of anything. But we also know that when someone you trust uses something, when someone you trust tells you about something, when someone you trust remarks about something, it makes a huge impact on you. And all you have to do to believe that is go look at the line at the Apple store in September when they launched their new phone. So yeah. what do you need to do? You need to make and create remarkable products and services. And what the word remarkable means is worth making a remark about. That's the definition of a purple cow. It's not up to me 
it's up to the person who chose to remark about it. So if you invest the time and the effort in your sales process so that it's a remarkable sales process. For example, the restaurant that says, pay what you want when you're done eating. Now, yeah. the, the food isn't what people remark about. They remark about the fact that the restaurant trusted them. And so the restaurant grew in size. Or, um, you know, you, you think about the, the whole idea that when you go to Tim Hortons in Canada and order a double-double, they know what you mean. Or that if you go to um, one of the couple, uh, the In-N-Out Burger kind of place that has the secret menu. These yeah. are things that people <laughs> talk about, and they are invented on purpose. So the, yeah. I, the idea is not to look for a gimmick. This isn't about gimmicks. This is about choosing not to be one of many, but choosing to be one of a kind worth remarking about. And the mistake that so many people fall into is they send me a note. That's mistake number one. Don't send me a note. But they send me a note <laughs> that says, I just made a purple cow. And they brag about this thing they did that they're proud of, but no one else cares. <laughs> and so it's not up to you to decide if your thing is a purple cow. It's up to your customer. Yeah, it, it's, it's funny. I, I'll, often, I'll often hear from, let's say, an accounting firm, a law firm, where they say, well, I mean, the thing is, you know, we just offer the same service as everybody else. So this purple cow concept doesn't really apply to us. And I'll often laugh and I say, well, that's actually the whole point is that if you believe that you do the exact same thing as everyone else, then your customers are certainly going to believe that. But exactly. what, if, what if you were the accounting firm that understood businesses between 37 and 42 employees in the IT space better than anybody else? Now, well, all of a sudden, you're not an accounting firm. You're exactly. a specialist in companies of that size and that space. And you'd be amazed how many of them there are if you carve out your niche. Well, let me go a little further, a lot further. Um, Please. So you may remember, because you travel, there was a period of time when every airport was filled with billboards for the big three, four, five, however many accounting firms there were. Yep. And they were all the same. They all even used the same stock photos of a guy exactly. in, a, in a bowler hat. Exactly. Right? Yep. And this was right around the time of Enron. Yep. And right when the, I think that's right around when Purple Cow came out. And I stood up on stage at an accounting conference and I said, here's the deal. If one of you would do the following, life would change for you forever. Fire publicly all the clients you have that skirt to the edge of the rules. And then announce to the public markets, if our firm audits a public company, it's because they meet our standards and our standards are higher than the gap standards. Well, if you did that, you would lose 10% of your business and then you'd double in size. Exactly. Because yeah. every other CFO would be talking about this and every investor would be asking, well, why aren't you guys using Deloitte? Because they're the ones that have higher standards. Yeah. Right? And so th that's an act of not just um, specialization, which I think is important, not just storytelling, but actually doing a remarkable thing. If I was the uh, CPA of choice for IT firms with 40 employees, the way I would turn it into something remarkable is I would spend 5% of my profits every year to have all of my clients spend three days together. And that conference, like the Allen & Company conference in Idaho, that conference would be the reason people hired you. 
because yeah. only then do they get to meet their peers, their competitors, their people they look up to. And in those three days, they learn more about each other and their business than the rest of the year put together. And that would be remarkable because whenever anyone asked about their business or uh, an accounting firm, they said, well, let me tell you the extraordinary thing my accounting firm does. Yeah, let me tell you this great experience. And, and it's funny because then they will tell about the conference they attended and the accounting services will almost be incidental. Correct. Yeah, that's uh, that's 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 great insight. That's great insight. And um, wow, it's just um, my my head spinning with the with the twenty seven different variations. The beauty is that people are going to hear this and say, "Wow, that's a great idea," and then they're going to be fearful that, "Oh, what if it doesn't work out right?" And that'll that'll paralyze them. So. Why I know, and I know you've written about this and spoken about this. Why is the fear of failing? And and you talk about it in it's your turn, which which I love the format and and just the whole feel of that book. But why is the fear of failing a good thing? Okay, well, let's try to take this into little bits. First of all, um, we have almost as much fear of success as we have fear of failing because what we're really afraid of is change. Yeah. Because change is a destabilizing force that might lead to the end of everything. So change is only three steps down the road, up the road from death. And a lot of, <laughs> a lot of you know, if you, if you get on an airplane uh, and they announce we're paying anyone $1,000 if they'll get off and take a flight an hour later, no one gets off. <laughs> right? Someone just offered you $1,000 an hour for your time. You don't get off the plane because you're on the plane. If they had offered you $1,000 before the plane took off, most people would take it. Yeah. And so we don't want change because change means we're, we're tempting the gods and we're going to get what's coming to us. Um, now, this feeling of fear leads to tension. And if you try to make it go away, you will either fail because you can't fight it or you will just stop doing what you're doing, which will make the fear go away, but you also won't go anywhere. So my argument is when we feel the fear, it's a compass. It's telling us we're going in the right direction. It's telling us we're doing something that's leading to change. And when that fear shows up, we don't need to make it go away. We need to dance with it. We yeah. need to acknowledge that it exists and use it as a, as a GPS to say, oh, good, I'm on to something. Let me dance with that fear, acknowledge that fear, hold that fear tightly, but gently because it is for me the symptom that i'm about to do a good thing yeah that's you know i i love it there's there's an accounting firm i had worked with where they were incredibly fearful of switching to a fixed fee basis and you know the ceo said founder said look there's no way we can possibly do this there's too much risk and you fast forward two years and now they have two clients who they do work on an hourly basis for everyone else, every other client they have, and they have 150 some odd clients, is on a fixed monthly fee. And the beauty is that they've actually developed into a way more efficient operation because before all the accountants were compensated as a percentage of the hours you know, of, of the hourly rate they were getting. Right. So they actually had a disincentive to be efficient. And once it became an hourly thing, they said, you know. We do the same thing for every client every month. Why don't we build a mechanism to do that more efficiently? And what used to take 15 hours now takes them five. 
And implicit in all of this is the accountant thinks that the client likes talking to them about accounting. And so they're <laughs> charging the client for a lot of FaceTime. The client prefers for the accountant to just go away and for the accounting problem to disappear. So both of them are incented to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and, and it's, it's difficult though, because it gets back to that fear of change that says, yeah, but I know that if I do 26 hours and I bill $200 an hour, that I just made $5,200. But if I charge them $6,000 a month, what if one month they need 30 hours? And the answer is, well, if you've been doing this long enough, you probably have a sense of how much time on average your clients need. And your clients probably are going to be receptive to having less risk and less variability. And now you stand out compared to your competitors because some, your competitor might charge them $3,000 one month and $8,000 next month. They know they're, they're paying you $5,000 every month. And the story here is also back to where we started, You know, the story of variability if, if an accountant comes to me and says, I want you to switch to this, my instinct is, no, 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 that's change. Accounting yep. is not bothering me. Go away. Because <laughs> if I change, then bad things might happen. But if the story is, I don't want to charge you a flat fee and I don't want to charge you an hourly fee. I just want to make your accounting problem go away. Would you like to hire me to make your accounting problem go away? And we can talk about what that costs. That's a totally different story. Exactly. Right? That's not an that's not an accountant centric story. That's a client centric story. Yep. So so I have I have two final questions for you because I, I know you've got to get on with your day. And the first question is this, and I, I, I am a religious reader of what you put out. And um and I've had the, the good fortune of being in the audience when you've spoken. And the first thing that always comes to my mind is you say something and I go, Wow, that's brilliant. And I think to myself, where the hell did you come up with this stuff? <laughs> what inspires you to come up with some of these ideas? Um, and I, mean, I guess that's it. What inspires you to come up with the ideas that you come up with? Because it's really, um, it's it's really revolutionary. A lot of the concepts you bring to the, you bring to the table. You know, in the new book, Your Turn, I talk about Stephen King getting asked all the time, "What kind of pencil do you use?" Yep. Because there are people who think if they had Stephen King's pencil, their problem <laughs> would be solved. Here's my answer, and I honestly believe my answer is correct. I don't think I have more good ideas than anybody else. I am sure that I have more bad ideas than anybody else. And it turns out if you are willing and eager to notice things, theorize about them, and come up with a bad idea, say it out loud you will sooner or later find a good idea, and then you can say that one in public. And that, it's that simple. I think that if people got over their fear of saying a stupid thing in private, they would get into the habit of finding smart things they could say in public. That's, that's, that's great insight. I think, I think a lot of times a lot of us say things we wish we hadn't said, and, um, and, and occasionally we come up with that stroke of genius, it sounds like you make sure you vet them before they, uh, they get out there, and, and maybe that's it. Because I will tell you that I'm always blown away at how you'll cover a concept that anyone else would have had to write a thousand words for, and you do it in a hundred words. And I think, man, how does he do that? And that, that's what's always remarkable to me. Yeah, well, the concision thing is a little bit of a 
uh, an unfair advantage because the people who have given me permission to talk to them give me the benefit of the doubt when I bring them a concise idea because I am setting it up for them to fill in the gaps. If a stranger shows up with a concise idea, they might not have the confidence to fill in the gaps. And so then it just seems empty. Yeah. So, so finally, let me ask you, if you had one piece of advice to share with a business owner, an executive, um, it's typically the people in, in our audience here, what would it be that'll, that'll guide them towards success going forward? Well, you know, there's big things and there's little things. I would say the thing you could do without excuses is blog every day. Yep. And it's a magical practice, and I can't strongly enough recommend it. Uh, the thing that you could do that takes a little bit more time is to read books by Ian and me and uh, 20 other people. And if you read a business book every two days, because that's all they take, uh, I think you will find it changes things for you. Uh, and then the, the, the hardest thing to do, uh, we're, we just launched our second iteration of the Alt-MBA. And yep. um, from what I can tell, it's changing people. And I built the thing that I wish I could have done 15 or 20 years ago. So if you want to check that out, that'd be great. But we don't have a lot of room, so it's, we'll unlikely be able to please everyone. But I think it, these, all three of these ideas revolve around a simple idea. This is the new normal. It's not going to go back to normal. Change is what we are in for. And either you're going to flee it or you're going to cause it. And I think you'd be happier if you caused it. And, and Seth, we, we will be sure to share the information about the Alt MBA program in the show notes. And candidly, I'm going I'm to share the links to um, your books page because I think that, I mean, every time I read one of your books, even if it's a book I've read, I learn something new. And, and honestly, when I read my book, I read something new. We, we recently recorded the, the Audible version, and there were things that I thought, you know, I forgot about that point in the book, even though I'm the one who wrote it, Right. Um, which, is, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Right. No, you keep making a ruckus. It, the work matters. <laughs> awesome. Well, Seth, thank you so much. It was absolutely a pleasure and honor to have you here. Safe travels. And I've got you know tons of things that in the future I'd love to talk about in terms of education. I've got a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old in the future of education. I, I love your TED Talk that everybody should view on what is school for. Um, and um, that's, a, that's, that's a topic for yet another day. But thank you again for being with us. It's a pleasure. Have fun, Ian. See you later. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. I want to wrap up with about 30 seconds of what I think were some of the biggest takeaways from my uh, time with Seth Godin. First thing, I love when he says nobody gets a Suzuki tattoo. Don't look for a gimmick to find the purple cow. Remarkable means worth remarking about, and you don't get to decide that. Only your customer does. Finally, blog every day, read books, he said by me and by him, but by anybody, and you can read a business book every two days. Keep in mind, this show gets its direction from you, the listener. We rely on your help. So if you know of a guest who would be great for the show, if there's a topic you'd love for me to cover, please send me an email at ian.altman at growmyrevenue.com. Share your feedback on Twitter at GrowMyRevenue. And of course, visit us on GrowMyRevenue.com for more information that candidly we just can't share on the podcast. Have a great week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everyone can embrace, even your customer. Until next week, this is Ian Altman. 
Thank you for joining us each week for the Grow My Revenue Business Cast with Ian Altman. Unconventional strategies for selling, innovation, and leadership. Be sure to subscribe to our program on iTunes or Stitcher. Don't miss Ian's weekly newsletter and be a part of the conversation on growmyrevenue.com and via Twitter at GrowMyRevenue.